Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game Productions. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined by my Hall of Fame co-host, Kevin Kernan. This is our flagship show, Coach and Kernan. I want to welcome everybody back. We've got a great guest today, a repeat guest from one of our other shows, A Day at the Yard, Common Sense Pitching with Wiley and Will. We're excited to have him back. But before we get to formal introduction to Jim, I want to talk to our audience here and, and then uh, pass it on to Kevin to share some great insights that he had this week with his articles with Ball 9. But to our, we're, we're a hair under 17,000 subscribers as of this morning. I want to thank you guys for supporting us. Continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, and rate and review. We're battling the analytics of podcast world just like we do in baseball. So make sure you rate and review. We can keep providing you great content like we will today with this show. Apple, Amazon, Spotify, or Stitcher, or let me know what another streaming device you have, and we'll certainly subscribe to it, but those are our favorite four. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, and Twitter, I should say, and obviously follow Kevin on all of those apparatuses as well, and track him on Ball 9, two great articles every week. I engage one audience member every day on Facebook, and we'll answer a question live, and everybody else will get a response back privately. We're now in 72 countries, grassroots all the way up to Major League Baseball front offices, and all we're trying to do is build a better baseball IQ out there. Uh, and I, I think I get smarter every show we have, Kevin. I, I know at least one person's getting smarter with uh, with the content that we provide and the questions that, that you ask our guests. So welcome back to the show and great articles this week. I love the one on David Cohn. Yeah, thanks, Dave. David Cohn was, uh, you know, a great, uh, a great great day to sit down. I always say if you have a good guest or a good person, I've known David forever, and we used to always – that article was just an extension of our conversations that we have by the coffee machine at Yankee Stadium or in the uh, in the bowels of uh, Steinbrenner Field back in the day a few years ago uh, before my job was eliminated with the post. But, uh, you know, that's that's what I do. I talk to people and the response to that article was off the charts because people want knowledge. They just don't want to be led around the nose by the nose by these idiot uh, nerds and uh They've had enough. And David bridges both worlds. He, I give him a lot of credit. He, uh, he understands the analytics. He knows where it's good, where it's bad. And uh, I, I would recommend everyone to read this, ball9.com, um, because it's it's real baseball. And I can't tell you how many baseball people reached out to me. I mean, longtime scouts and everything that uh, they were so happy to read this. And I'm hoping to get through to some of the owners because they're they're complete idiots uh, how they how they hire people and what's going on in baseball. You watch any baseball now, um, it's it's a hard watch and pitching. One of the points David made, and of course we'll talk to our guest about this, is the ridiculous chasing velocity theory that's all throughout baseball. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's great to get your velocity up, but you still got to command. I mean. Um, and you got to think for yourself uh, real quick, and then we'll get right to the guest. Um, I'm watching the, the Mets yesterday, and Strider's got great stuff. He's a, he's a curveball, you know, slider guy. But, you know, the Mets put up – they get a 6 nothing, basically a 6 one lead, and the Mets come back and make it 6-4. And Strider, to get to the fifth inning, he finally unveils a changeup. The changeup was devastating. I mean, he should be throwing that pitch, you know – you know, 60% more than he's throwing it. The, the guy, you know, he, he he made McNeil look stupid on it. He made Nimmo look stupid on it. These pitchers don't think anymore. They're complete idiots. They're robots. And 
that's part of what we do here. Um, I'm glad to hear we're up to 17,000. We should be up at 700,000 for the information we give in some of the, some of the dopey shows that are on. Do what you can do, and, uh, you know, we'll just move, move plugging along. <laughs> no, I, I love that. No, it was a great piece. I, you know, I, I have the luxury of communicating with you, you know, on a daily basis and value the friendship we develop. But every time your articles come out, I feel like a fanboy getting ready to read it on the article. So no, it is, it's a it's a heavy burden to carry. That's all I can say. Yeah, you do a great <laughs> job. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah. So with our with our guest, I'm going to keep the preamble short. Uh, he's been with our, our show before, and I think the content he provides is going to give you much more than, than what I could describe in his background. But um, give you a little bit about our guest today. In 1981, the number one pick in the first round of the 81 draft by the Baltimore Orioles, spent 15 years with the Brewers organization as a pitching coordinator, and a key stat we'll get to it today a little bit, reduced injuries by 70% and saw 75 guys make it from his tutelage to the bigs as pitchers, was also the national scouting supervisor next, and you see names like Corbin Burns, Devin Williams, some of the stars that we see today in that Brewers rotation are part of... uh, Jim's efforts as a scouting supervisor and uh, what we'll get in now currently today uh, with all that experience, he's giving back to his community, his kids with Rooney baseball. And we're going to talk a lot about that as well today. And want to just welcome back again, uh, Jim Rooney to our show. Jim, welcome buddy. Thanks Dave and Kevin. Yeah. Want um, want to kick off. You, we, we started talking a little bit before the show and I always say, I wish the audience could hear our pre-show and post-show talks. They're, they're just as candid as the real show, but you're running uh, Rooney Baseball right now, and, and and I got to talk to you when you started it, and and really am impressed with the the strides that that you've made putting it into your community and integrating it. When you're looking at the kids today, uh, we talked a little about the topic of fun. Um, what are you seeing in regards to that, and and why do you think maybe the kids approach the baseball and maybe the lack of fun they're having is different than when we were kids? Well, I, I think the number one thing that happens is that, you know, we're starting these kids off at, I mean, in the town rec league here, there was four-year-olds playing and it's constant instruction. It's constant, um, do this, do that. They never develop their own feel for playing the game. They don't, you know, it's not like they're out in the street, you know, playing stickball like we used to do in the Bronx or other places in New York and, it's, it's, it's not necessarily that they're robots, but they never, they're never allowed the opportunity to feel what they're doing and have fun, what they're doing and learn how their brain uh, um, processes the information, learn how their body moves in their natural way. Uh, And I think that's one of the biggest things. Um, I I use this uh, analogy with a lot of the young guys. I say to them, when you first started eating chocolate cake, did it taste good? And they said, yes. And I said, did you need an instruction manual on how to eat that chocolate cake? Or did you just, you know, wing it and go for it? I said, you did because it tasted good. And it's just like hitting a baseball or throwing a baseball. When you do it properly, there's almost an euphoric feel about it. But we take all that away from these kids. And I think that's one of the main reasons they don't have that much fun. Yeah. And with all of your experience as a as a player, um, as an instructor, as a scout, and, and you shared stories about your dad being in, in boxing, and you've had brothers that have played professional baseball, you obviously get it, you understand it, and I would think you're a treasure in your community. What 
what makes Rooney baseball different? Um, well, I, I think the greatest thing that I do for a lot of the, especially the younger kids, so you know, the little league age kids of eight to 12 years old is that, um, besides making sure that they, they're enjoying themselves and having fun is, is the motivation for them to believe in themselves. I think what's lacking a lot nowadays, um, throughout our society is that, uh, especially with kids is, is some of the, one of the toughest things to do is to take the leap of faith in yourself. But if they're always being hounded and, and, and put up or, or, you know, I mean, I was at a ball game the other day and this 10 year old was, you know, asking his dad what his spin rate was. I, I mean, I mean, it, it just, <laughs> they get overloaded and, and it just takes away from everything. So I think, while I, I do use a, 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 some modern-day technology, it's to confirm how the player's feeling. It's c- to confirm, you know, what they're doing. And, and it allows them to – they learn by playing the game instead of the reverse. Um, you know, even – I have a nine-year-old son who plays uh, plays on a travel team because he wanted to, so I said, let's give it a shot. And – his coaches are the nicest guys in the world. They are, and, and, and they're volunteers and they're applying themselves and they're here to help the kids. But when the game starts, everything becomes reactionary and the coaches get caught up in the competition. And next thing you know, even if you're saying a positive thing, if you're saying the positive thing after a negative event, the child processes that as a negative event as a negative instruction. And then the whole aura over the field becomes negative. I mean, you can see it when you start an inning and the first kid gets a hit. Next thing you know, they might reel off seven, eight hits in a row. First guy in the inning gets up, he strikes out on three pitches. He swings at a ball over his head. The coach is yelling, don't swing at that pitch. Everybody else is now, boom, three strikeouts in a row. Because they're, you know, they're children. They're nine, they're 10, they're 11 years old. So I think when they come to me, a lot of them are just so completely stressed out, Um, you know, and then after working with them for a while, one of the parents might come to me and go, when he's with you, he's completely different. He's here. He's hitting the ball on the nose. He's throwing strikes. He's having fun, but he can't seem to carry it over into the game. And partly because they get back into that negative environment, that negative reinforced environment, and they fall back to their old, their old traits. Um, yeah. But yeah. once they take that leap of faith in themselves, then they start to feel what the process is, and I think that's what helps them. Yeah. And and if, correct me if I'm wrong. You, you I know you introduced us to Kurt Eikis, sports psychologist. Uh, does a great job with children's. We have both his books. We had him on the show. At your recommendation. What kind of work are you two doing together right now? What kind of dialogue are you having? Uh, well, um, I've been promoting his book and, and getting as many of his books to the, I mean, I, I think on my son's travel team, there's got to be 10 guys that got the book and with, <coughs> with my clients in the proper age group, they basically all have the book. Um, we, we've had preliminary talks. Um, uh, Kurt is, is in the process of trying to do seminars and clinics uh, in different places around the country. 
So we've talked about possibly, you know, having one down in the Charlotte metro area here. Uh, that's in the initial stages. Um, a lot of it is just that, um, you know, the, f- the first time I spoke with Kurt was because I, I, I always say to my players, uh, the greatest thing about baseball is the next pitch, whether you're going to throw it, hit it, or catch it. Let's just focus on the next pitch and try to, you know, forget everything else. And next thing you know, I see this guy wrote a book, win the next pitch. So me being me, I, I figured out a way to contact him. I told him I loved the title of his book. And we had a conversation. Uh, you know, it was probably one of those things where you thought you were going to have a 15, 20-minute conversation with somebody and talk a little bit about some things. And it turned into almost a two-and-a-half-hour conversation. And we just talked about, um, uh, you know, the whole mental side of the game of baseball. Um, Kurt said to me, you know, I, I did some homework and found out who you were and everything like that. And I thought when I picked up the phone today that we were going to have a great, I knew we were going to have a great talk about baseball, but I never realized that how much you understand about the mental side of the game. And I said, well, I've been reading and studying this since I was a junior in high school. The, the second that I, 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 uh, I discovered that there was, you know, things of this nature. So I've done it. And, and then of course, as acting as a pitching coordinator, I used to work with the sports performance guys nonstop, um, whether it was even just helping our coaches understand how an individual processes information or different things like that. Um, um, I spoke to him about, um, you know, the, the four quadrants of focus and how everything goes. And one of the things that I have an interesting story about that. So we, um, when I first get over to Milwaukee as the pitching coordinator, we have a left-handed pitcher, Manny Parra. And uh, at the time, he was the um, highest bonus for a draft and follow out of uh, Sacramento, California, junior college. And uh, Manny's a left-hander. He's got great stuff. And he just he's just having trouble putting it together, putting it together. So we do this, uh, our sports performance guy, um, Tim Hughes, uh, he had this assessment where it helped with the four quadrants of focus. And what we found with Manny was that he would get stuck in one area. You know, um, I mean, the terms are kind of scientific, but he would get stuck. His, 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 he couldn't process fast enough to focus on the glove and then catch ground, ground ball back to him and understand where he's supposed to throw it and, you know, different things like that. What are the four quadrants, Jim, just for our audience? Um, well, if my memory's correct, it, it basically is like, um, you know, wide soft. So it'd be like a quarterback looking down the field and seeing the colors of his receivers all the way down to uh, uh, hard narrow, if you want to say, for a pitcher focusing on the catcher's glove to throw a strike and then and then the, the two others in between. Um, so what we started finding with all the research that, that uh, Tim Hughes had been done and, and he, he had worked, oh, it had to be 40 years in Major League Baseball with the Toronto Blue Jays and the Milwaukee Brewers, um, that starting pitchers could go quickly between the four quadrants of focus. Relief pitchers got stuck. Next thing you know, we move Manny Parra to the bullpen. I believe he gets traded to the Cincinnati Reds, and he probably pitched 10 or 12 years in the big leagues. And it, it wasn't about stuff. It wasn't about 
analytics or spin rate or anything like that. It was simply about to take all the thought process away from him because once he was in one quadrant, it, he wasn't going to switch back and forth very, you know, rather quickly. Uh, and it made him a big leaguer. Um, so through those conversations with, with uh, Dr. Kurdix, we just developed this friendship that, uh, you know, we'll see where it takes us. Yeah. Now you have, I have just one more question for you. I'll pass it over to Kevin. You have your own philosophy uh, that I saw about the triple spin philosophy. Could you explain that to our audience, what that entails? Yeah. Um, when I first started coaching uh, collegiately at Pace University, uh, this is this was probably 1987. Um, I I had developed a a, a relationship with um, with uh, Coach Bill Thurston um, through Coach John Winkin of Maine, who I met when I was 15 years old at a baseball camp, and Coach Thurston was asked to uh, coach the Australian Olympic team when the Olympic baseball first started. And he said he didn't want to get paid, but if you could build a science lab at, uh, at the University of Massachusetts, which they did. And I was so interested in that, that I, because of our relationship, I, I was um, allowed access to a, a, a study by uh, mechanical engineers in China when, when China wanted to have Olympic baseball and they came up with this thesis of uh, double spin. So I read it through and it was talking about hip rotation and trunk rotation and the pitching delivery. And, you know, my mind and my common sense and logic said, well, it's not really double spin. And because probably at that time I lacked a lot of creativity, I just called it triple spin because there's hip shoulder separation in the pitching delivery and this was 87. Nobody really spoke about it. Uh, and then probably probably as you got into the late 90s, all of a sudden you started hearing all this terminology about hip shoulder separation and throwing and, and hitting and all this other thing. So that's kind of where triple spin was born. Three, ro- three rotational forces, hip turn, shoulder turn, arm path, hand path are the three rotational forces that you're trying to create as much force as possible to the baseball. And then the two platforms in which they rotate around are, are your front foundation hips to ground, you know, the start of the kinetic chain and then your, your uh, shoulder blade, your scapula in which your arm, you know, your scapula has to, you, you see all the exercises, scapular stabilization, all these other things so that your arm has a platform in which to rotate around. And that basically became the birth of triple spin. I love it. I got, I got one more quick question. I'm sorry. With, um, I mean, with all this knowledge and all this information you have to give, have you met with any barriers of entry into adding this into your community? Um, you know, yes and no. I say it that way because this area, when I, I, I first moved into Fort Mill, South Carolina, which is a suburb of Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, it's going on five years ago when I uh, when I uh, uh, left Major League Baseball, and it is travel baseball crazy here. Uh, I joke with my wife. My wife was a, a collegiate basketball player at DePaul University. She's from Chicago. I'm from New York City. I said, you know, where we grew up, we we used to think that there was a there was a pub or a bar and grill on every corner. 
other neighborhood in in the Charlotte metro area on every street corner there's a travel baseball team and that tends to especially in this uh this era this time of the internet there's a lot of uh, experts out there you know I lived in Scottsdale, Arizona for a while. I reached the kid about the $30,000 millionaires. In Charlotte, there's a lot of, um, how would you say it? Like a lot of little league level coaches that believe they're big league coaches. Yeah. Um, so when I first got here, I approached all the travel organizations that had these very large, beautiful facilities. I walked into a couple, told them that, uh, I'd help them out any which way I want. It, uh, they would like, uh, if I could have access to their facility, I'll lease space in their facility to grow my business. Here's the plans. I must have received eight to 10 phone calls. People wanted to talk with me to discuss this. Went and discussed it with all of them. And then, in you know, today's modern terms was immediately ghosted and, even facilities that, you know, three, four in the afternoon when I walked in were completely empty. 8,000 square foot, beautiful facilities, empty. Um, so I was like, well, this really isn't going to work. And uh, next thing you know, a neighbor of mine has an after school program, uh, STEAM curriculum and uh, sports, uh, very similar to my old teammate, uh, Jeff Schaefer, who runs the uh, uh, not whole foundation here in charlotte yeah and uh and he said well you know if you want um if you want to run your business out of here you know we'll work on it you know we'll do it i started with one outdoor batting cage and zero clients now there's going to be we're expanding there's going to be two cages hopefully covered we got a half infield and i have 65 75 clients i'm i'm running uh, 40 to 45, 30 minute sessions a week. And because of the age group, um, anybody for the most part under 12, I only meet with them once a week and then I give them homework and different things to do. And, um, uh, because, you know, they have their travel ball schedule, their rec schedule, their, their, you know, their sister probably plays basketball, their parents are, you know, running around crazy. So, I do it that way. Um, so once I was able to get to the parents, um, things took off. But before that, as far as dealing with the travel teams, the coaches, the whatever, um, a lot of resistance, a lot of resistance, a lot of people, you know, uh, we already have a pitching guy. We're, I'm, listen, I'm not looking to step on anyone's toes. I'm just here to help whatever I can to help the kids out. Um, you know, I, I, I didn't run into a lot of people that were necessarily, um, you know, their public image is that they're helping the kids, but I don't necessarily think that that's their motive. Yeah, it's a big money grab, big yeah. money grab out there. So, Kevin, I'll pass it on to you. Wow, great stuff. And um, I think you're also talking about power. These people want power, you know. It's, uh, you're seeing it across the board in life, uh, in our country, um, you know, um, the, the, the they don't want to give anybody else a chance. And I'm, I'm glad you're, you're, you're finding your own path. Uh, how many years were you with the Brewers, Jim? Uh, 15. And, and what, how, why did you leave the Brewers or what was that? I'm not familiar with that situation. What happened there? 
Uh, the first five years, I was the minor league pitching coordinator. Last 10, I was the national scouting supervisor in charge of all the pitching. Um, well, the new regime came in. I, I, thought, yeah. I basically worked for uh, Doug Melvin and Gordash. Oh, yeah. Good good baseball people. And, yes, uh, sir. I previously worked for Gordash in Toronto yep. with uh, Tim Wilkin and Chris Buckley. Um, when uh, when the new regime came into Milwaukee, um, they basically, I mean, I mean, without mentioning any names, we we'd go into the we'd go into the pre draft war room, the scout you know scouts room, and the whole thing, and um, um, you know somebody would sit behind our director of scouting and, and every round during the draft would be say, how about this guy? How about this guy? And, you know, he was uh, higher up than our director of scouting. And, and I think eventually it came down to, they, they realized that from my five years. So my years as pitching coordinator were the, you know, Prince Fielder, Ryan Braun, Giovanni Gallardo, uh, Giovanni Gallardo, when we draft him in the second round was the first year that I was a coordinator, uh, got to the big leagues, out of high school and probably three years then became the, you know, for at least six years, the ace of the staff. Um, I developed positive relationships with Ben Sheets because he idolized Jim Palmer. And, and uh, I knew Jim Palmer pretty well because he had helped me out when I was an Oriole coming up in the system. Uh, he couldn't believe like, you know, that Ben Sheets that I was with, you know, Mike Flanagan, Scott McGregor, Ray Miller was the pitching coach, Rick Dempsey, the catcher and all these things. So when I would go into spring training, um, even as the scouting supervisor, I mean, one day I was kind of embarrassed. Everything stopped and everybody's running over, whether it was Eddie Cedar or Garth Org, the coaches or the, or the pitching coaches and, and then the pitchers. And then Giovanni Gallardo wants to introduce me to Zach Greinke. And, and, you know, and all I want to do is basically sit in the corner and not draw any attention to myself. And I think because of that influence that I had over the development staff and then the scouting staff when I moved over to scouting, I mean, a quick story is, is how um, one year nobody in our scouting department but the area scouts saw Brandon Woodruff pitch because at Mississippi State he got relegated to the bullpen rather quickly whether that was a, a clash of personalities with the head coach or whatever but the result was he wasn't pitching the area scout knew him since knew Brandon Woodruff since he was 13 years old so I was uh, on the road and the area scout Scott Nichols called me up and said uh, Jim Brandon's going to start Tuesday at the pro park at Jackson, Mississippi against Southern Miss. I, I really think that the coach is just like hoping he doesn't do well. It's a non-conference game and he gets buried. I said, I understand. I said, I'll, I'll be there. I'll be there, Scotty. Scotty was an old catcher in the Cardinal organization, solid scout, really knew the kid. So I said, I'll be there. So Tuesday I show up. And this was the year on the big league club where Jimmy Nelson, which we took in the second round on the University of Alabama, um, had become the ace of, of the Brewer staff. And it was really starting to come together for Jimmy. And uh, I show up Tuesday night in uh, Jackson. And after five innings, Woodruff's got a shutout. And I just say to Scotty, listen, Scotty, let's get up and leave. 
there's nobody here in the park. We don't want anybody to see us. Uh, let's not draw any attention. In fact, you stay in communication with Brandon, but there's no need to see him anymore. Okay. Well, I'll, let me take care of this. Right. Cause I said to him, here's a, here's a six, three, 225 pound athlete who could hit throwing bowling balls at 92 to 95 miles an hour. I'm, I looked at his body. I looked at his delivery. I looked at the way he did things. I said, this guy's going to throw upper nineties. Um, we'll just work on a couple things. <clears throat> Nobody goes to see him because he's buried in the bullpen. Uh, we get to the draft room after the first day, the scouting director is asking, um, 11th or 12th round, let's look at some college guys that for whatever reason, even some high school guys, that they're signable, but something happened in their season. Something went wrong, whether they got hurt, whether they were benched or whatever. Things just didn't turn out. So everybody in the room had their say and everything. They asked me, Jim, do you know, do you have anybody that fits that bill? I said, yeah, Brandon Woodruff. Who, who's he? Where's he? Well, he was on our sideboard buried in about the 150th slot. He didn't even make it to our main board. So the director, understanding that the general manager and assistant general manager are in the back of the room, and my title is that I'm the pitching guy, so to speak, I said, uh, he goes, you want me to bring this guy over from 150th spot or so on the sideboard over to the main board? I said, yeah, yes, yes. I said, he does this, he does this, he does this. Believe me, this is the guy. They then, they then asked the um, East Coast supervisor at the time, did you see him? Uh, no, I saw him in the fall. I didn't see him. Why didn't you see him? Well, he was buried in the bullpen. I'm not going to waste the weekend just sitting on a guy that's not going to pitch. Okay. Would you have him on the fall? Oh, I thought he could be a first rounder. He was their Friday starter. Just didn't throw strikes early, so the coach benched him. So the, the director of scouting now is in a little bit of a, uh, a catch-22 here because yeah. he asked me, I, I gave him, and now everybody in the room sees what I just recommended. So he moves him over to the main board, but he puts him in a spot where he's thinking, uh, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to take one of these other guys ahead of him come the 11th or 12th round and just – by the luck of the draw, 11th round starts, and the five or six guys that he put ahead of Woodruff go off the board. And it's our turn to pick. He has nowhere to turn now. He has nowhere to turn. And because if he if he doesn't pick them, then, and Woodruff goes on to be pretty good major leaguer, it's on his back. But if he picks them, and most likely a lot of those guys are going to fail anyway, then it's on my back. And yeah. uh, yep. what happens sometimes in the scouting world, and, and I think, to be honest with you guys, this is, this is why a lot of the analytics were able to grab hold. Because in a lot of scouting rooms, some of them are a political environment, and it's how people play the room or who are they buddies with that they have the most pull in the room. Well, long story short, we picked Brandon Woodruff, and we all know what's happened. Um, you know, it's very similar to Corbin Burns. Corbin Burns is a starting pitcher out of St. Mary's, and uh, 
And every, most everybody in our room says he's a reliever. Well, if he's a reliever, then we're not going to take him before before the fourth round. We're, we're going to take him after the fourth round. And they asked me about him, and I said, he's not a reliever. He's a four-pitch guy. He needs work on his hips. He's not getting down the slope. Uh, our, pit, our pitching coordinator is going to do a fine job. Uh, we have a great relationship. We'll talk about it. We, I'll, I'll give him exactly what he needs to do. Long story short, Corbin Burns gets drafted in the fourth round by us, right? Well, he's a Cy Young winner, you know? Um, so I think when the new regime came in, they, they witnessed how much pull and how much respect I had in the room, in the development room and the scouting room uh, because of my successes. And they decided that there was a, uh, as they officially called it, a, uh, a restructuring of the scouting department and they eliminated my position. So well, that was that. Now yeah. that was great. Uh, you know, I'm glad I asked the question because that gives everybody some insight and then, and then, and the work speaks for itself. It's funny. You mentioned Ray Miller. When I spoke to David Cohn for the piece, uh, Cone of Wisdom, that he brought up Ray Miller. My point is, is, the, the work you're doing and, and, and baseball people, it's generational and it's passed along. And these these people who are in charge of teams now are afraid of that. And they move, they, they get these they get good people out of the system quickly, uh, as quickly as they can. And the owners fall for it. So that's the I think that essentially you just broke it down so well. That's what's going on in baseball in a lot of places. And, and it's a shame. But uh it is what it is. You go on with your life, you know. Speaking, to, you're speaking to someone who got eliminated as well. You do your job well, and you just, you know, you have no regrets because you move on. And the, uh, you know, the, the things that I'm, you know, that makes it makes it interesting to me is that you put it perfectly about how it was on you. And uh, I remember, and also the, talk a little bit about how getting. Uh, I thought it was interesting too how you got the hell out of there. Uh, because you don't want to have a scout so anybody draw attention to yourself. I remember I talking to the scout who got the Jacob DeGrom for the Mets, who, by the way, a couple of years after drafting uh, DeGrom was changed, was basically let go from the organization. And he, you know, he, he was the guy who was totally on DeGrom all by himself, but he, he made sure to go there when no one else was there. And once that happens, uh, you know, you, you kind of, you hide a guy. So just explain a little bit about, the, the the artful dodging of scouting as well. It's not just showing up and uh, being a big big shot with the uh, radar gun. Yeah, one one of the things, um, you know, and and it it may have contributed, you know, down the road to when when the, my position was eliminated. You know, I still had a tremendous amount of at the time what I thought were friends and close contacts who were still in professional baseball. And I thought, because many of them said, Oh, you're a lifer. You're not, you're not, you know, you'll, you'll get a job fast. No worry about it. And the whole thing and nothing ever materialized. Um, I think what probably contributed to that too, is that I would go to the ballpark and for the most part, I'm a nice guy. And, um, but I wasn't necessarily there to make a lot of small talk, to share my thoughts. I was there to do my job 
and to go to where I had to go. Now, that also happens because when you're when you're on the national level, you know, the, there comes a point in the year where you're on a plane every morning. So you're in and out, you're in and out. You're not, you're not there to develop relationships. Now that you might've had relationship with people from your past. So, you know, those relationships continue. So it's, it's not like everybody from every organization or something got to know, you know, Jim Rooney, the person or anything like that. Um, they kind of thought like, well, that's, um, you know, that's Rooney, the pitching guy. I mean, that, to, to go along with what your thought was, I had a East Coast supervisor for another organization tell his area scouts, and, and, and I'm very good friends with this guy. He's from New York also. And um, he told his area scouts, I want you to make a note of whenever you see Rooney come into the ballpark and tell me who's pitching on that day. <laughs> That's a smart um, guy right there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that shows you, you know, there are times that you're like, you know, there was times I'd go to a game um, and, and make it like I'm there studying guys in batting practice and all, which, which I was, but just to, just to kind of throw people off the scent. Because I knew it got to a point in time that they they understood what was going to happen, um, and then people that were relatively close to me, you know, they knew without me even telling the story, they knew why Brandon Woodruff was a Brewer, or Corbin Burns, or Devin Williams, or or even the last one, uh, Ashby. Uh, you know, everybody in our room wanted a, this other left-hander, um, this other left-hander from junior college in the Midwest. And I saw Ashby pitch a playoff game. And I said, come on guys. I mean, the guy can spin the ball. He's going to have a left-handed slider to go along with his curveball. Here's how he does it. And boom, you got, you got to jump on this guy, director of scouting. And then at that point in time, the, uh, our draft room was like the director of scouting was in another room with the GM and assistant GM and the analytics staff. And then he'd come into our main room during the draft and say who we we were picking. <laughs> and um, I don't know what happened, but he came in the room and he came up to me. And he said, uh, "Are you are you okay with Ashby in the fourth round?" Well, I had him in the second round. We're two rounds late. Let's pick him, and we picked him in the fourth round. Um, you know, so um, yeah, there are times that you. You know, you, not that you're throwing them off the scent. I mean, you, you, you know, you're being honest. You're just doing your job. But it's a good thing. And I'll relate you a story, and especially Dave, since he's also a basketball guy from upstate New York. It's the classic line that Pat Riley says that his Irish grandmother in Binghamton used to say to him. Never let them know where you're coming from. <laughs> I know Pat very well, and uh, that's that's very truthful. And, and that's that's the secret to his success. I was just going to say a lot of this too is how I mean your your approach to your job is how you were raised and how you were developed in the Bronx, and and you you know like you say, and I've seen it I've seen it firsthand for many years. A lot of these guys are playing the political game because they don't know how to play the baseball game. 
And, and that's why you get such mediocrity throughout baseball now. And, uh, you know, you give it enough time and, and it'll show itself. So it, it's very interesting. You said something earlier I want to make a point about, too, because about making it fun. Get, give us because it's so hard now. I mean, I coached for many years and, you know, my, my, my kids all played college ball. My daughter was a, a good home run hitter, set the record at her college. Um, you know, I would always make the games fun. I had my faults too, don't get me wrong, but but I would make it fun. Um, and I would I would teach, especially when I started with young guys. I'll give you one quick story. I don't know if Dave's ever heard this one, but it's kind of interesting. Um, when my kids were just getting in and it's a, you know next step above T-ball, basically, um, the first thing I do is divide my team into two, put half the kids at second base and half the kids at shortstop, have a coach hit the ground balls to uh, second, have another coach for myself hit ground balls a short. And I would, I'd buy a big gar- metal garbage can every year and I would put it on home plate because if you hit it, it makes a lot of noise and it, it would bang, you know, kids at that age, kids love that stuff. So it, invariably, the throw from second was a little closer and I'd split the teams up where they were pretty even. So usually the second base team would win. And the first thing that would happen was the kids at shortstop, especially with the younger, the really young teams, um, they would, you know, start crying, yelling, throwing their gloves or whatever. And uh, then I'd switch them over and then they'd win. But part of coaching is teaching them how to lose and, 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 and to make this fun. And I think that's been lost in all this analytical garbage that's everywhere now. Yes, I, I agree. Um, you know, as far as making things fun, sometimes just think back to how we grew up. Yeah. So you, you played stickball, wiffle ball, strikeout, stoop ball, kickball, punch ball. You played anything that resembled baseball, whichever way you can. And you'd emulate your, your heroes too. So you'd be, yes. be throwing from different angles. You'd be doing hitting from different angles and different yes. Yes. sides of the plate. Yeah. I mean, how many times did you, you would hit the Yankee lineup? And I'm left-handed, but I had to bat right-handed when it was Willie Randolph's spot in the order. Yeah, me too. Thing is, is I go that, all the way back to Bobby Richardson. Yes. So if you sometimes if we just emulate some of the stuff and adapt it, because kids don't really do that much like that anymore, but in our practices or in our individual instructions, we can start to create situations that are very similar to that. Um, here's another point. Like one day somebody said to me, what, why don't you use the pitching machine that much? And I said, well, I can throw batting practice, uh, in Buck Showalter's last year with the Yankees, I threw left-handed BP for a while for the Yankees when, uh, George was crazy because they got shut out by Randy Johnson, Chuck Finley, and, uh, Mark Langston to start the season. That'll happen. <laughs> yeah. So Jim, Gene Michael was the GM at the time, and he, uh, his assistant, uh, Tommy May, called me up since we're from the same part of New York. You know, so I'm pretty good at throwing left-handed BP. But the crazy part about it is, why don't I use the pitching machine? Well, I'm dealing, especially in the in the afternoons, I'm dealing with little league to you know what we used to call the New York Senior League. 15 to 15 year olds. I want, I'm trying to teach them to hit. I'm trying to teach them to adapt. I'm trying to teach them to make adjustments. I'm trying to fine tune what they do. The quickest way that it's going to stick is if they have success doing it. I can hit anyone's bat. 
Yep. So as a pitcher, I was pretty good at reading swings. I see a kid swing. I can throw the ball exactly where he's swinging. And now the reinforcement of the sweet spot and the feel and the fun has that kid learn much quicker than if I did 42,000 different drills that everybody thinks it's going to go right. Or if I, you know, you know, set up the, uh, blast motion, which I do use and all of a sudden tell them what they're swinging. No, no, no. That, I mean, we, you have to introduce the fun, introduce the feel, and then the kids will learn. They, they, I mean, almost every f- post I make nowadays says uh, hashtag uh, play to learn. Um, I, I have a, a quick one for you because I'm always reminded of this. So I'm, uh, I spent two uh, off seasons in uh, Barquisa Metal, Venezuela, coaching for uh, Cardinales de Lara. The that manager. was going to be my next question. Yeah, so the, manager, the manager was Nick Leva. I was the pitching coach uh, at the time. I worked for uh, the Toronto Blue Jays. And one day, um, uh, we're on the bus. I forget we were if we were coming back from a game or leaving to go to a game. And a majority of the streets in Ven- Venezuela are cobblestone, especially the side streets. Not, not you know, run down, busted up cobblestone, the whole thing. Okay, very uneven surface. I look, there's three young boys. They're playing with a broomstick and like the head of the of their sister's baby doll. Okay? And they're playing baseball. All right? The second I saw it, I thought back of going into a Dick Sporting Goods and finding one of these uh, skills uh, uh, balls with all the knobs on it. And they call it a quick hands trainer. Because it bounces every which way. Exactly. Well, the kids in Venezuela figured that out a long time ago (laughs) and having their own fun with their broomstick and the the baby doll, which, of course, on a cobblestone street bounced every which way. Oh, my gosh. That's Um, a great, great story. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, yo, and and again, that's, that's what's missing now. Um, and you can have so you can be so creative and, and it's kind of fun though, for us too, at this stage, because when you introduce those things, the kids take to it like you wouldn't believe. And, uh, um, and that's a great point you make. And I'm glad you explained it so well about batting practice. Cause you know, I can still throw a pretty decent batting practice at the age of 70. And, um, um, when you hit those bats, uh, you know, you, you build up the confidence, uh, you, you show them some success. And then all of a sudden, once once kids barrel a ball or, or get that feeling, they'll actually I think that's one of the great things that's lost now in, in, in baseball teaching is that they're teaching the swing, but they're not teaching them to hit. I mean, it's a big difference to me. You got to you got to go where the ball is. It's that simple. And um I think it's one of the great things that are be, that's being lost in the game today. So I think if you go back to some old ways, and I'm sure you and Dave do this, you you have great success with these kids. Finally, before I throw it back 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 to Dave, um, Jeter and I talked about the next pitch all the time and the next day, and and uh, you know that that whole mindset of um, you know letting it go and moving forward. Why can't kids get that understand that now? Uh, as, as much as they should. And uh, um, even though 
a lot of teams have the, uh, you know, the, the mental skills coach and things like that. Um, why are they so hung up on failure, not failure, not just moving on? Um, well, I think, I think just as a whole, it's not just baseball. I think nowadays in our society, um, I, I listened to a, a Ted talk a while back. It was a, a woman who was a very successful, uh, I think, civil engineer or whatever. And they asked her what was one of the most important lessons she learned in her, in her youth. And she said, uh, at the time, I didn't realize it. But when my brother and I would come home from school, my dad would ask us, so tell me, how'd you fail today? And as an adult, I, I realize now that it created in my mind the environment in which you're supposed to fail. You're supposed to experiment. You're supposed to try. You're supposed to extend yourself. You're supposed to get out of your comfort zone. It's okay. Nothing to be ashamed of, right? Yes. And I think that's what happens. I think that's what happens. Um, you know, the other thing is that also happens. You know, I saw it, I saw it with some some of my younger clients and even with my own two sons who are nine and five years old that, um, you know, during the COVID lockdown, um, a lot of their competitiveness, you know, they still were competitive, but it was in video games and, and different things because you're stuck in the house and you're not really anything. And then you, they show up, let's say at the after school program or working with me after, you know, a year or two of, uh, of lost uh, as part of the, their socialization and their maturation as children. And next thing you know, there's battles and wars and cries and screams and yells and, and everything was completely out of control. It was chaos. Um, so I, I think that when you take that, all right. And not that it's a lockdown, but when, when you, when you start a, a child at four or five years old, trying to play a game of baseball, which is all about failure, but you put them in a completely structured environment, you're, you're really throwing a cog into their whole maturation process because now all of a sudden you're putting them in an area where they're supposed to be performing at four, five, six years old. Yeah. Like, it's an, insane. like, like a major league player. Exactly. I think that's where a lot of the fear of failure comes into play. That's a great point. Yeah. You know, it's it's like playing for the old basketball coach that the you know, I, and I know that Bobby Knight said the the the, the greatest motivator is the bench, but um, and 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 probably in his time because of his success that worked tremendously for him. But I can remember you play for the old high school basketball coach, and you know you you might be a junior fighting for uh, fighting for minutes, and next thing you know you have a turnover and you're on the bench. That breeds a completely negative environment, like I said before. Even if a positive, even if a positive instruction is given after a negative event, it becomes a negative, especially in these kids' minds. So there's the fear of failure. There's where they get stuck in failure. I mean, I never in my life, when we were playing on the sandlot or the street or stickball, witnessed one of my nine or ten year old neighbors or friends or or competitors cry on the field um oh my god if you cried on the field yeah that would be yeah, i mean it happens every day 
Yeah, um, that's that great. You know, I had a very – in New Jersey, like we had the 16th Street Field where we, we would play – we would go all day. You know, on a weekend we'd show up at 9 o'clock in the morning and you play till it got dark. And uh, somehow we made it through the whole day without, you know, fistfights and things like that. And and uh, and now it's uh, – uh, you know, this is a whole other story, in, you know, down the road, but uh, we, we won't get into it now. But this whole disrespect thing uh, is out of control as well. So – I know I got to throw it back to Dave. You've given us a lot to think about. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I just think the insight you offer is, is, is off the charts. All right. Thank you. Yeah, it's invaluable. And I, we're going to push this out, obviously, globally. But I want you to tell our audience, uh, Jim, how can people reach you? How can they get involved with Rooney Baseball? Because I know, you know, we're not too far away from you. I'm certainly going to get my kids uh, down to you. So you can have an impact on them as well. Um, but how can how can audience members reach you? Well, the quickest way is uh, my website, uh, www.rooneybaseball.com. It's probably the quickest and easiest way. Uh, through the website, they can send me a message. Uh, and it's got all the information. It's got all my background. It's got a, a description of everything I attempt to do uh, with young guys. Um, and... Uh, we could take it from there. Yeah. And you do things in person, obviously, but have you done things virtually uh, or consultations with programs, teams, family? Uh, yes. Yes. I, I've done um, uh, private lessons and evaluations virtually uh, for some people. Um, initially, it was people that I knew from my past, and they want me to look at their son or break down this and that. Um I'm attempting to expand that at the current time. Um, the other thing I've done is, is uh, because there's still some people on the college level that, that know me and know what I've done uh, and know what I'm doing now, um, there's a couple of, whether it be pitching coaches or assistant coaches or kids, the players themselves or the players' parents that uh, – you know, let's say there's a, a, a freshman at a college and, you know, he's a redshirt freshman because he missed a year from Tommy John and things are a little struggled and they feel like they've hit a dead end. And and I've done a lot of video analysis. And then, um, you know, way back, way back before I got back into professional baseball, I was a certified strength and conditioning specialist and um ran one of the facilities for plus one fitness clinics down in, in Soho in uh, lower Manhattan. Um, so I do a lot of exercise prescription. I fix a lot of things that are going wrong, you know, uh, with exercise prescription and, you know, not necessarily in the weight room, but in, you know, an area of exercise and biomechanics and kinesiology. Um, so I've done a fair share of that. Um, um, the, th the thing about doing that, and, and, and I don't mind at all, is that, um, you know, obviously when you're the pitching coach or the assistant coach or head coach at a Division One major university that's known for winning baseball, you don't necessarily want to want it to be publicly known that uh, you're calling some guy to help for help. Oh, I hear you. You know, so, you know, that's kind of ends up being a piecemeal type operation because, uh, you know, or a la carte, if you would say. Yeah. Well, with, with our audience now, we've got people in 72 countries. I'm going to encourage our audience to reach out to Jim. 
complete package coach. I mean, we knew that before the interview, but if the interview didn't tell them that, then they may want to re-listen to it. Uh, mental, physical, um, mechanical. I think you could you could help out a lot of kids at the grassroots level, but to the front office people listening that are looking for help with scouting, pitching, the mental side of the game, I would give them a call too. Um, so Jim, we appreciate you today. Kevin has one last question that he always asks all of our guests and it's, uh, um, I'll, I'll pass it on to him. It's a, it's a short question, but a deep one. Yeah, Jim, real simple. Um, and take, you can take your time with this, but, uh, because of your background and everybody's background, they kind of answer it a little bit differently. So there's no, there's no cookie cutter answer to this, but simple question, uh, to Jim Rooney, what does it mean to be a ball player? What does it mean to be a ball player? Um, I think the best way for me to answer that is uh, uh, from comes a scene from the uh, movie Field of Dreams when uh, Kevin Costner ends up playing catch with the younger version of his father. That's what being a ball player means. Yeah, and I think, I think that's what's, especially in uh, modern day baseball on a professional level, when they're trying to uh, uh, extend their audience or increase their audience with all these rule changes and all these other things. I think the simplest part of the, the family fun, the family relationships, the father-son relationship um, the coach player relationship is getting lost in all this shuffle. Yeah, that's a great answer. I mean, uh, yeah, that, that question, uh, evokes some great answers and that, that, that really gives you something to think about. And, uh, cause you're, you're right. Baseball in that little short scene, baseball is broken down to its basic roots. So, uh, thank you for that. You're welcome. Thank you. Yeah, that's great. Well, Jim, thanks so much for your time. You gave us pretty close to an hour today and, I know I got smarter and I think our audience benefited from it as well. In fact, I know they did. Um, I want to thank our subscribers, almost 17,000 uh, leading into today. Continue to download, listen, like, subscribe, rate and review so we can battle those analytics of the podcast world. We can keep providing you great content like we did today with Jim Rooney. Apple, Amazon, Spotify or Stitcher. Those are our streaming apparatuses. If you have another one, let me know. I'll, I'll subscribe to that as well. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. One live Facebook post every day to a listener, and then I get back to everybody privately. We are in 72 countries, grassroots to MLB front offices. And you heard a great one today, uh, a guy that can help out a lot of people in baseball, from young kids all the way up to pros. So I encourage people to reach out to him, support Rooney Baseball. Um, and all we're trying to do here is build a better baseball IQ, and I think we did our job today, Kevin and Jim. And guys, thanks so much, Kevin. I appreciate what you do for the network. And Jim, thanks for being a great guest today. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Okay, and that's episode 171 in the books, Coaching Kernan. Doing what you love has a high price to pay. Some put on a suit, but he ran the other way.